0: morning, everybody. My name is Jenny. I am the interim rector here at Emanuel. Um, inter- rector is a, another f- a fancy word for lead pastor. Um, and we're just using Anglican words around here now, so you'll be hearing that word a lot. Um, it's really good to be in church with you this morning. Thank you for coming here instead of having a picnic outside, which is what um, you maybe should be doing, uh, praising the Lord in this glorious weather. Uh, it's good to be here with you. I'm excited to jump into this text today. First, I wanted to share with you a little bit of just like a visionary update of where we are as a church. Um, I have been um, thinking a lot, obviously, about where we're going in the next six months, not only because it's my job, um, but because I will be having a baby soon and be leaving you all. And so, um, so it's good to plan for those kinds of things. Um, but it's been a real gift to me, actually, to be able to, like, finally have some clarity after a season of, like, a lot of uncertainty and really imagine what God might be laying out for us as his church And so I wanted to just, like, share some of that with you this morning so that you know sort of where we're going as a church. I uh, had the pleasure of going on a uh, little small day-long retreat uh, a few weeks ago with a man named Trevor Hudson. If any of you have ever heard of him, he's a spiritual director. He's wonderful. Um, And uh, I claim that, you know, it's not a retreat unless you get at least a nap, which I didn't. Um, But the Lord met me there, which I think qualifies as a retreat. So um, anyways, it was a wonderful time. And um, he basically was, was sharing, he's like traveling the world, he's from South Africa, uh, talking about this paradigm for the way to think about your own life and how to approach God and understand God's movement in your own life through the paradigm of sort of this, uh, of Noah's Ark and that story. And it was really helpful for me in my personal life to kind of work through these details. And even as I was driving home that day after the retreat, there was um, just the Lord like flooded my mind of like, this is the same thing for your... For this church and so started to just pray and discern about those things and so I wanted to just share with you uh, a few of those things this morning so you can go ahead and put up this is a a real photo of Noah's ark Um, beautiful isn't it Uh, so here's the thing about this this paradigm this is helpful for your own life so if you want to do this exercise uh, at home you're you're welcome to I think it was, was really helpful for me but one way of thinking about how we are to engage our life and move together as uh, either as individuals or a family or even something like a church is to kind of identify some, some of these things um, and where God might be, like, outlining or defining things in your life. So, for example, the floodwaters. Um, there are things in our life that are really overwhelming um, or just seasons of change at best, you know, where um, the the waters start to rise and things just start, the landscape starts to look different. And that for us has been um, it, a, a lot of things over the past several months um, with our our lead pastor, our former rector, resigning after a long season of family medical leave to go be with his family and kind of step away from the, um, the rigors of ministry life. Um, there's also... You know We're stepping into a new season of uncertainty of looking for a new rector and like trying to figure out what that looks like as a church. Um, there is also 12 weeks where I'll be not here, and um, that is devastating for me. I'm sad to leave you all for that period of time. Uh, it will be for very good reasons, obviously. Um, but so there's just a lot going on here. There's a lot of up and ups and downs. There's a lot of different faces you might see from, from up here. Um, And so those are like floodwaters. Now, I will say, like, this has not been a particularly, like, crazy season for our church, and that is because of you all, um, your faithfulness and your willingness to walk with with us alongside us as we've kind of moved through these changes. So I say floodwaters. I don't want you to think that it's been, like, this crazy upheaval around here. It's actually been uh, the Lord has met us um, in this season and been really faithful. So then we have the ark itself, which is like the structures of your life that keep you afloat in those seasons of overwhelming or in those seasons of change. And again, you can see how this would be helpful in your own life. But for us, the structures that will keep us afloat in the next six months are the things that we just do as a church, Uh, the the reasons we come together. The first of those being Sunday worship, uh, including serving and uh, in church for our kids and our youth. Um, If we don't have Sunday mornings... We're just a nonprofit. If we don't come here to worship, if we don't come here to have the sacraments, um, we are just, we're just a nonprofit. We're just a place trying to do good in our community, which is great. Um, but we're not that. We're a church. And so we're going to continue, obviously, having church, doing church together, one of the structures that keeps us afloat. Secondly is we're going to continue to work this work in connection. If you're in a neighborhood group, stay in it. Don't leave. Keep going. Uh, go, go be faithful to that group of people. Engage in that way. Uh, we're going to continue to do second Sunday dinners, a great way for you to get involved if you've never uh, gotten to know a lot of people here or you have and you just want to meet some new people. This is a great way to, to connect with people from within their own homes. And uh, we'll still have our Coffee and Connect that happens every, other, uh, or every second Sunday as well. We're going to continue to serve our community through the work of, uh, of our par- partners. Uh, we have monthly events, monthly uh, drives that we're doing every single month for the year um, that you can engage with. So if you're not uh, subscribed to our weekly reader, that's how you can find out about those things. And lastly is we're going to lean into the liturgical calendar, which we do all the time. That's who we are. We're an Anglican church, so we lean into the liturgical calendar. But thanks be to God, we're actually moving into, like, the big liturgical half of the year. Which is going to guide us and lead us um, in the next season ahead for us. So then, like, what does life inside the boat look like? So here's the sort of specifics, like what it's going to look like to be here every every week for us for the next six months. So you have this big green ordinary time here on the left, and that's where we've we've been for the last several months. We are going to first close down this season well together. I think that our, your faithfulness um, has just been so great and wonderful in this season, has made uh, working here just such a gift. Uh, we want to close out this season well. And um, towards the end of ordinary time, it's like it really ought to reflect the way the world looks like on the outside. Um, things just start to move a little bit slower. Things get a little bit colder. The leaves start to fall, you know. We kind of move into this a little bit slower season. We're going to end our work that we've done in the Gospel of Luke this year faithfully uh, together and uh, and sort of close down this season of ordinary time well. Then we're going to move into the season of Advent, which is um, the four weeks before Christmas. And this is an opportunity for us as the church but for also the church across the world to enter into a season where we go into sort of like this darkness, this dark space and await the birth of Jesus, and kind of try to enter into the world that the world before Jesus was living in, of of the darkness, and waiting to see if something will come, if change will really happen, if joy will come. And so we are going to enter into that season together. I will be gone during that time. I'm going to probably be be done during uh, the very beginning of Advent, and then the next uh, 12 weeks after that. And so you may be wondering who will be doing this job. Um, And a wonderful human being named Amy Winkle will be taking over um, as priest in charge, another cool Anglican phrase, (laughs) Um, during that time. She is great, a dear friend of mine. She was my first boss ever in the church. And now she's going to work for me. And um, I'm, I could not be more thrilled about it. She's just such a, a close and dear friend. And uh, she's, a, a like I said, a fellow priest. And so she's going to take over sort of this work for that time. And then, because God is so very good, we're going to have her stay on for a number of months after that. So she's going to probably be with us for about six months. And what that does is it just gives us an opportunity, you know, I'll come back and um, and return to this position. Um, But I need a little bit of help, Uh, some support during, during that time. It will come back during Lent, which is a really busy season for us as a church. I'll have a newborn. A lot of things will be going on. So to have her sort of here as support will be really great. And I think you all will fall in love with her during that time. And so you'll be very happy to have her stay on. Then we'll move into the season of Epiphany. And ordinary time. And this is, um, I'm saddest to miss this season because if you are, have been with us for the past several years, you know this is when we dig into the new gospel for that year that we'll be studying. So we'll start to study the gospel of Matthew together during that time. Amy will lead that. She'll do a wonderful job. And then we'll head into Lent together. I will be back by that time, um, but we'll be studying the spiritual disciplines together and engaging in those during that season. So that's what the six months in the ark is going to look like together as we travel, travel along in these waters. Um, I, I do think that the ark, as an analogy, is not just one for seasons of overwhelming. Uh, I think it's helpful, like, if you're in your individual life to think of it that way. But this is actually the way the church has understood itself for a really long time. If you'll go to the picture of the, of the church. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a church that's not in a storefront <laughs> that used to be a Dollar Tree. But they look like this sometimes, and um, they're very beautiful. And they were made to look like an ark with all the wood and all the structure and the windows on the, like, the back and the front and then the sides. It's like you're walking into this giant ark. It's the way the church understands itself, that we, when we walk through these doors, we come into this space to do the work of God together and to, like, huddle close that no matter what's happening on the outside of the world, we are in this thing together, and we're moving together, and we're going to this new place together. So it's not just for seasons of like turmoil. It's just who we are. It's just the work that we do. So I like could not be more honored and happy to be in this boat with you all uh, now and and in the seasons to come. So so that is the update, sort of on where we are. If you are interested in knowing more about. Um, our search for a new rector, a new lead pastor. I'm just going to give you a short kind of blurb on what that will look like because I know lots of us come from different traditions. And so the tradition you may be used to is like the staff exclusively decides who that is or someone super high up with lots of power picks somebody and just installs that person. So here's what it will look like for us. We are going to form a search committee. And this will be a subcommittee of our vestry, which is our governing board. And they'll put together an application that will circulate among our membership to uh, apply, to be on this team. And they will do the hard work of searching and interviewing and all that fun stuff alongside the staff and the vestry. Um, So that is what that process is going to look like. If you think you'd be great at that, we'd love for you to apply. So um, at some point in the next, I don't want to say any specific term because I don't know, um, amount of time. We will be circulating that application to you through um, through members' email, and you can apply in that way. Um, and like I said, you know, a few weeks ago, we'll keep you up to date on all of those things as we as we move through this process. Got it? You excited? Great. I'm excited to move into this next six months with you all. Thanks be to God for the liturgical calendar and these wonderful high seasons. It's going to be very good. My Bible. That's what I'm looking for. All right. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke 18. We're going to be in, in, in a parable today. Parable of the widow and the unjust judge. Anybody ever heard of it? Yeah? Okay. The Bible says, Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. So that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, we find faith on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, parables are are a fun thing. They are um, the things we it's like the stories we remember most, a lot of us from the gospels and there 's a reason for that uh, there's there 's a reason Jesus told these stories because they take something that we know, like a teaching, a truth uh, that is that is something that Jesus could have stated plainly and what he does instead is he sort of like paints a picture. Or offer us, offers us a new image, a new way of looking at and thinking about whatever that thing is. And that's why we remember it. Um, because it, like, sparks something in our imaginations. And this parable is no different. Parables are supposed to be provocative, which is an interesting, interesting, a helpful way, I think, of remembering what, they're, what parables, uh, the purpose are. Uh, because... P and P, right? Parables, provocative. They're supposed to like provoke something in you to think differently about something that you've thought about one way, maybe your whole life. And so Jesus does this a lot. This is also something that teachers all throughout the ancient world would do. It was just a good teaching technique. And so when Jesus tells parables, he's like right alongside all these other teachers who are telling these really great stories. He's, he's uh, joining the company of, of really wonderful Jewish teachers throughout history. So Jesus is basically like, in this moment, he's like, I want to tell you that you need to pray always and not lose heart. And yet saying that, just probably not going to do the trick. So what can, I, what can I tell you? What story can I tell you? It will sort of paint the picture of what this is meant to be like. And the thing about this parable, and actually about a lot of parables, is that they can address a sort of like primary issue of faith while also they're meant to be funny. Now, we have sort of lost a lot of this humor over the years, uh, just with cultural differences, but also in like translation with language. Anyone familiar with the story of Jonah? Jonah. In the Old Testament, I talk about Jonah a lot. It's one of my favorite things in the whole Bible. I think it's wonderful. Um, it's like a comedy. So if you've ever, like, met a Jewish person and talked with them about Jonah, which is probably not many of us, um, it is read and supposed to be, like, thought of as a, a really funny story, which it is. When I talked about it a few weeks, you know, like, God builds this or grows this plant for Jonah to sit under and just complains like a child the whole time. And it's just a very funny story. Um, so I actually, in seminary, this is a free nugget. All, all of it's free, but, um, I, I was horrified the first time I heard that Jonah was supposed to be a comedy, and so I wrote my very first, very long paper arguing that Jonah was a, um, a tragedy <laughs> and not a comedy. Anyone wants to read it, email me. Um, <laughs> it's the highest grade I got in my whole time in seminary, actually. Went down from there. Anyways. So parables are supposed to, like, teach you something. They can maybe even make you feel like deep things, like tragic things like Jonah does for me, but also supposed to be lighthearted, supposed to just, like, make you enjoy a, a theological thought or a reality. So what is Jesus doing here that makes me think that it's humorous? So to the unjust judge who does not love God or human beings, he tells us many times, this woman is bothering him. He's She's annoying him. This uh, term uh, bothering is also like wearing out. She's wearing him out. And if you look at the Greek, the like root of that is actually the image that it's supposed to provoke is she's giving him a black eye. So if you can imagine Jesus telling the story in a patriarchal culture, um, you know what prayer ought to look like, friends? A widow, a lonely old widow, beating the mess out of a judge giving him a black eye. What a new way to think about prayer. Would that change the way that you thought about it, especially if you were a first century person? To take this thing that was made to be like rigid and only for the the holy and powerful and say like actually, it looks like someone just like you and me, maybe even someone with very little power, taking up agency and, and really taking like their authority and asking for something moving towards someone in power and really, truly desiring and asking for something. So is this supposed to be how we think about God or ourselves or about prayer? Probably not on the whole. That's the other thing. We get very trapped in sort of like this black and white thinking. Is this good theology that we should be punching out God in the eye (laughs) in prayer? Probably not. Is it good pedagogy? Yeah. Because you can remember this kind of thing. You can take this image and apply it to your life and your, when you pray in a way that will change the way that you think about things. That's the point of parables. That's the point of this parable in particular, is to say that you've maybe been doing this thing this one way. And I want to paint a picture for you that you can enter into uh, in a different way. So um, I, I think when Jesus tells us, how do we pray always? Um, We should pray always and not lose heart. I think this image, this new way of thinking about things is exactly what he's trying to tell us. That if you are going to succeed in this, you cannot be rigid about it. You have to actually open up your mind and your imagination and enter into a space with God that may change the way you think about something. The way that you've always thought about it. So how do we pray always? Just, I think, helpful to say, first thing, is that prayer is the essence of our relationship with God. They may, may sound very obvious to you, um, but it's worth saying. Prayer is the essence of our relationship with God. Conversation, being in one another's presence, is how we get to know others. It's the same thing with God. It's like when you meet someone, you start dating them and you're sitting across the table from them, and you're learning, like, what they sound like and how they talk to uh, people at the restaurant, (laughs) if they're kind or not. Uh, You learn their stories. You learn through those experiences over and over of being in their presence if maybe you can love them. And then you do start to love them, and you start to notice all these little ways that they engage in life, the things about who they are. You start to know if they say one thing, you can hear that thing behind it, you know? It's like you really start to know them in very deep and intimate ways. This is what prayer ought to be like. We ought to spend time in the presence of God to begin to know him and to love him and engage with him in these different ways. Prayer is essential in the life of the Christian. So the top reasons I hear that people don't pray (laughs) as a pastor, (laughs) which I hear a lot, are two things. Anyone want to guess? Why don't we pray? Huh? Time. Anyone else? Huh? Boredom. Boredom's the other one. Time and boredom. Huh? What is? Never mind. Okay. I thought you said you're perfect, and I was like, thank you. (laughs) Time and boredom. And funny enough, I think these are the two things that this addresses. This this parable. Um, these are the top two reasons that we don't pray. These top three, two reasons that I hear about. The top two reasons that I have struggle, struggle in my own prayer life haven't through have through seasons. Um, and I think the reason is, is that the way we think about prayer is too small. It's too rigid. So the way I've been taught for a lot of my life, the way I've been even like coached and directed as a spiritual person is to find that same rhythm every day. You know, you have like your chair and you have your coffee and the perfect ratio of like coffee to cream or stevia if you're John Michael and, um, and the right blanket and just everything has to be sort of perfect. And you come to that space every day and that's where you meet the Lord. And let me tell you, that is absolutely true. The seasons of, like, deepest spirituality in my life, most consistent, like, time with the Lord are when I can create that space. But then something, like, knocks it off, you know, the ratio isn't right. Or the kids change their bedtime or wake-up time, you know. It's like all these, like, little things that can begin to come into play that throw you off what your normal schedule is. And then it's like our, our sense of God gets thrown off almost, and what I think that is an invitation to us in our life is, is not just to continually find new spaces, new ways to, like, engage in silence and solitude and contemplation with God, but to begin to think differently about how we engage every single moment of the day. Have you guys heard the phrase, practicing the presence of God? So a book by by Brother Lawrence that was written a long time ago. Uh, He was a monk in the 1600s who was um, (laughs) assigned kitchen duty at the monastery and was basically like, if this is not... The only way this is not going to kill me is if I learn to experience God here. And so um, he began to do this, like, sort of, like, practices every day of what it looks like to do dishes and experience, like, the depth of the presence of God. And that is the thing that I think we are invited into when Jesus says pray always. For some of us, the time to pray is in that little box, that single location, that single time period. And again, I think that's a good and right thing. I think it's actually necessary for our spiritual lives. But sometimes we limit God to that time and that place as well. We say, like, God, here's your 30 minutes to do whatever you want. And then we go and live our lives as, like, the CEOs of ourselves the rest of the time. When actually... God is constantly throughout our day trying to connect with us, to let that space, that prayer time be like actually tilling of the soil and the rest of the day, the rest of the time, actually being the time in which he grows things and speaks to you. So we don't want to limit God to that one portion of time but actually open ourselves up all day, all the time to what God might be doing, what God might be saying, how we might be interacting with God. Uh, This is one of my most favorite books, not just on prayer, but just in general. It's called Enjoying the Presence of God. It's by a woman named Jan Johnson, who is like the Lady Dallas Willard, and in my opinion, doesn't get enough credit. Um, not just like the Lady Dallas Willard. She like re- co-wrote a lot of his stuff, so she's she's legit. Um if you are interested in, like, if you're like, I just need, like, a manual <laughs> for what you're talking about. <laughs> how do I practice the presence of God? She wrote it for you, and it's pretty short, uh, very helpful. Uh, she talks, uh, she gives really practical advice on how to pray always. Uh, she has a chapter titled, um, Thinking About Someone Becomes Praying for Them. and talks about how you can think through, when you, someone comes into your mind, how to, like, send that thought back to God. How to find God in irritating moments, which would be very helpful. How to ask and hear from God in the everyday. These, like, little ways that you experience life as a human all the time that you can begin to, like, sort of hold your hands open to and give back to God and be the kind of person who does not limit God's presence in your life to one time and space. But that you walk in the presence of God Always. When Jesus talked in John about sending the Holy Spirit, he called the Holy Spirit, this Greek word called paraclete, which means the one who comes alongside. And what a tragedy, I think, that Jesus might think it is, that we would um, not have that experience, that knowledge, that presence of the one who is alongside us, not just in that precious moment with good coffee, you know, but all the time. The Holy Spirit is with you always, and you are meant to know that and experience it and feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, engage with the Holy Spirit at all times. That is like the gift of being a Christian in our daily life, and you're invited into that. So lastly, how do we not lose heart? It's a good question. What do we do with the fact that God is sometimes not quick to, to answer our prayers for justice or our prayers for things that we need or desperately want? Jesus tells this parable for a reason. He knows he's about to leave. He's about to die. He's about to go ascend and be with the Father and he assures them right before this text that he is coming back. However, he gives them this parable to say like don't forget me. Pray and don't lose heart. Like, I'll be back, and in the meantime, stay with me in prayer. And yet, we all know, you know, he uses this word quickly at the end of the parable. Um, (laughs) That is a very relative term, apparently, when Jesus uses it. Um, Quickly. Has he returned quickly? Been a long time. Could be tomorrow. But for us, with that word, um, the timeliness of that word, it has not been the case. And sometimes that feels that way in our own prayer life. Sometimes generations of people have been praying for something, and it still has not come to pass, come to fruition. When Jesus uses the word quick, he is referring to God's timing for things. He's not referring to our expectations or our desires or what we think quick is. It's already a relative term. It's particularly relative when it comes to the things of God, which can feel really frustrating. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you, like, give you an answer for it. I actually don't have an answer for it. Um, Answer to questions like that, like, why hasn't God done this? Why hasn't God solved this? Why hasn't God answered this prayer? Uh, Is God good? Why is there evil in the world? Those kinds of things. That's called theodicy. And lots of people have written lots of really good books on it. Um, But no one has, has like, an uh, an answer for all of us, or else we'd all be Christians. (laughs) All the answers would be there. So one of the things at this retreat that I went on, um, one of the things that Trevor, Trevor did was not give a grand theological answer to every question that was asked, which I feel like in our culture right now is like that, that we have to have the answers for everything. So he mentioned in this, we're talking about Noah, he kept talking about this phrase, divine failure. He kept saying it over and over again. And finally, someone like raised their hand and was like, hey, can could you say more about divine failure? And he goes... And it was like quiet for a minute, and then he said, you know, there are things swirling around in my heart and my mind about it, but I don't know that I could or should share it. They're just for me and God. And I like, was overwhelmed in that moment, which was, like, no one else cared. (laughs) But it was, for me, an incredibly important moment, a reminder that, like, we do not have to have all the answers. You do not have to have everything figured out. You are not an expert in everything. You shouldn't be. And not only should you not have everything figured out, but you should, in your questions, be given space to have intimacy with God. Uh, I'll be honest with you, even confess maybe to, the, to you, my church, <laughs> um, that I have, um, I'm having a really hard time being just like a contemplative in my life right now. I actually f- have been that way, like naturally my whole life. I'm very comfortable with like gray spaces and questions. Those, that's just kind of like how God made me. And I don't know if it's the, this job or like our cultural moment or my season of life or whatever it is, but I have become an answers person. I've become like a logic person. I wanna have I wanna have pastoral care meetings where people ask me questions and I'm like, here are six things. You're welcome. You know, like have all of the answers for people. It's how I want to like nurture and care for the church and for myself. And so like I'm I'm finding that like a lot of the ways that God created me to be have been sort of like lost in this season and feeling this invitation back into that person that He created me to be to sort of let go of these answers that we're all looking for. Because sometimes when we insist on answers, when we come to a text like this, a beautiful, provocative, fun, engaging text like this, and all I can think about is why does he say quickly? He's not quick. What happens is I lose the God of the text. I lose the experience I'm meant to have with a God who has given me the kind of love that I will never experience from anyone or anything else the kind of God who says, like, if you're having a problem, I want you to know how free you are to to approach me about it, how angry you can be about it, or how much energy you can have about it. You're free to do all of those things, to experience me up close and personal like this widow with this judge and know that I am someone who does love other people, who does care, who's not unjust, who is actually the most just being in the universe. You are welcome into that space, and I lose that God, that person, that experience if all I can ask is a question and wait for an answer. And that's not me saying asking questions is bad. It is essential, I think, in the life of faith. It's brought us to lots of places of understanding and I think even liberation in the church. We have to ask our questions. So sometimes the most faithful thing you can do is go get a book on something you know, find the answers, ask someone that you know, Uh, ask a pastor, like, what do you think about this? But I also think that we have to as a church, in a world that where everyone has to know everything all of the time and have all the answers, we have to give each other and ourselves permission to just have intimacy with God. To just experience him despite the questions we might have. Even in spaces and moments in our own life when we let the questions become too much, we miss the presence of God. I know some people for whom sitting at the bedside of someone who's dying has been the closest they've ever felt to God. And I I know other people for whom the questions were so big it was the farthest they ever felt from God. We have an option when we enter into spaces with lots of questions to find the God of the moment, to ask how God is coming to us or to let these questions kind of blow up to the point where we can't move past them. It's why I love church. It's why I love coming together and worshiping. It's why Jesus tells us to pray always because it takes all of the questions and all of the things in our life that would like blow up too big for us to see God anymore and shrinks them back down to a God who is like so much bigger than any question you could ask, any answer you might need. That God is bigger than all of those things. And he has created you to have intimacy with him. God doesn't want to just commune with your brain. That's what I'm telling myself a lot right now. He doesn't just want your brain. He wants all the things about you, the deepest places in you. So this is my confession and invitation for myself and for you where are you missing the god of the story where have the answers become such a big deal that we've missed actually the person and the love that we're meant to have in moments like this there's another book i love on prayer these are probably my two my two favorite books on prayer they're both relatively short which is helpful this is a book called Beginning to Pray by Anthony Bloom. I picked it up because I thought, oh, that sounds nice, Beginning to Pray. It is the most challenging book I've ever read on prayer. So if you're like, I don't want to be challenged, don't read this. Um, it's, it's, it's a very challenging book, but it's, uh, it's really wonderful. He says, like, maybe the first hopeful thing at the very end, <laughs> and, um, and I want to read that part to you. Um, Because I think it's lovely. He talks about sort of like fighting to get into this space of prayer um, for for a lot of of your life. And what it means to like really engage with God. And then in the end, finally we get there. And he says, when you begin to hear a chain rattling on the door. When you have a feeling that it will open. Then say the words that are your own. Call God by the name which he has won in your own life. At that moment, you will have met. You will have an ever-deepening and enriching relationship that will follow. Like the martyrs spoken of in the book of Revelation, you will say, Thou hast been just and true in all thy ways. And that is the invitation for you and me, is to not um, get to the point in our life where I, we say, like, my questions have become too big for you. But to rather say, thou hast been just and true in all thy ways. That that experience with, the, with God, with his spirit, would change the way we begin to think about him, broaden our horizons of who he is and how he might want us to, to be with him and to be loved by him and to seek him, to know him. And we'll do that through prayer. We do that through opening up to ourselves in, into intimate spaces with him. I think the really good news about this black eye business is that we are invited into a sacred, uh, emotional, incredible space with God. It reminds me a lot of the story of uh, Jacob wrestling with God and um and he's like i won't let go until you bless me and they fight all night long um and he is finally blessed and renamed you know he's given the name israel one who wrestles with god and that is like your birthright you get to go to god in such a way that is like as intimate and silly as this black eye thing um you get to approach god with the same confidence as someone who wrestled with him all night in a garden That is who you get to be as a Christian. And so may you go and live your life in that way. Someone with the confidence of the widow who approaches the judge in such a way. Someone with the confidence of Jacob who says, I need you to bless me. And won't let go until it happens. And God always in response will say, absolutely, yes, one who wrestles with God. It's a gift. What a blessing for us as the church. Amen.